Hey, this is Jamie from Stonemaier Games. I love reading about game design, and for years now, probably around 15 years, I've been reading articles written by Mark Rosewater at Wizards of the Coast. Mark is the, I believe, the head designer, maybe uh, even above that, uh, in charge of Magic the Gathering at Wizards of the Coast. And he writes some incredible articles, including one 10 years ago called 10 Things Every Game Needs. I consider this a classic article. I've reread it over the years um, to continually learn during my game design journey and my publishing journey from Mark's insights. And today I thought I would go through this list. Um, I like 10 things videos and here's 10 things that I can examine both from a perspective of modern board games instead of just Magic the Gathering um, to a little bit examine whether or not I think all these things are things that games need and uh, just to, to look back over the list and see what Mark talked about. And I'm gonna include examples for each of these, um, these items. So we'll start with number one. Number one is Mark believes that a game needs a goal or goals. And uh, for each of these, he kind of goes into detail about them. And he kind of clarifies that he's not just talking about um, uh, little quests or objectives as many games have, although those are goals in a game, uh, but specifically win conditions, uh, that every game needs a win condition. And I would agree that this is what delineates a game from an activity. There are games I play, uh, well, really, there, there are activities I play, like Telestrations, where we don't keep score. We're not looking to win. Our experience, our, our winning is if we're having fun, if we're laughing or not. And so I would call Telestrations more of an activity, an activity I truly love, but an activity, not a game, or as a game has a win or a loss condition. Um, Mark focuses on the win conditions, and so I wanted to highlight one game because I think Mark wrote this article largely from the context of uh, competitive games, and uh, there's a whole other category of games, cooperative games, where not only is there a win condition typically, or multiple win conditions, ways that all players can win, there are also often lose conditions where all players can lose. And so I wanted to mention my new game, Smitten, as an example for this. And don't worry, most of the games on this list won't be from Stemeyer Games, but I wanted to mention Smitten because it's been on my mind a lot recently. This is a one to two player cooperative game where there's one condition, you're trying to complete two three by three panorama grids of cards with a limited communication between you and your partner, or solo if you're playing alone. Um, and if at any point in time you don't complete those grids or I play a card with instructions for my partner and the partner cannot play their card uh, or place a card as a result or follow those instructions, you lose. So there are multiple ways to lose, as is the case in many cooperative games, and one specific way to win, although how you win is entirely up to you. Uh, so I thought that was an example of expanding a little bit upon what Mark wrote because... Um, because he didn't quite, I, I don't think he was really including cooperative games in that category, whereas cooperative games, I think, are a big part of modern gaming at this point. So that's a goal or goals. Every game needs a goal or goals. Step two, every game needs rules. Um, and I, I entirely agree with that. I think I, every game needs some sort of structure that is ideally written down or on video or someplace where you are following those rules to play the game. Um, sometimes you learn rules as you play. Sometimes you know all those rules up front. And uh, I think a good or a bad rulebook can really make or break a game. And so one example I wanted to give here of a game that I thought did a fantastic job of teaching the rules and helping me retain those rules is Sleeping Gods. When I opened Sleeping Gods, I was over... So Sleeping Gods is a, another cooperative game, a cooperative campaign open world game. And I was overjoyed when I opened the game to see that there's a quick start guide. 
it's a wonderful quick start tutorial that kind of just walks you through the things that you're doing at the beginning of the game and introduces you to the rules one by one as you are playing and by the time you're done with this guide you know probably 95 percent maybe even more of the rules but if you ever need a reminder of those rules there's a much more robust rulebook with icons on the back page of the rulebook which is great to have um, table of contents so you can find specific things in the rulebook and even on top of that ryan included a quick reference guide with font that even for my eyes is maybe a little bit too small but he did cram everything here onto a double-sided one to two page uh quick reference guide that you can have on the table so the combination of these three things and a nice onboarding tutorial a great robust rulebook for reference and even just learning the rules this way if you want and a quick reference guide i think comes together for sipping guides to form a really nice cohesive package um yeah so I, I do agree that every game does need rules and uh, i think sleeping god does a great job of that number three and this is maybe the one let's see if there's yeah yeah this is the only one that i that i disagree with a little bit with mark and that is and maybe number number four as well but number three is interaction mark believes that every game needs interaction and i don't necessarily agree with that um I'll give you an example of that in a second. Let me start out with a game. Uh, this is the last Stomar game I'll mention on this list, but that is Libertalia Games of Galecrest. This is a game that is full of interaction, but probably not in the way that Mark was really thinking about it, because magic is all about direct interaction. You have one specific opponent, typically, um, that you are competing against, and you are directly, uh, basically trying to hurt that player and hurt their creatures, hurt their spells, prevent them from doing well. And I think that works really, really well in a dueling game. But I think that level of direct interaction doesn't work as well in the majority of, uh, of non-dueling games because there's the potential for spite. If you're picking on one player over the other four players at the table, that player can end up feeling really bad about that, and that isn't fun. Fun will come up later, later on this list. There are games where everyone kind of opts into that. Um, Kemet is a game of combat. Scythe has some combat in it. So you're, when you're playing those games, you're kind of opting into the possibility of being attacked by one player or other players. Um, but I wanted to bring up Libertalia because in Libertalia, you are not targeting specific players. Libertalia is a game where you are placing character cards face down. You're selecting a character card and placing it face down and then activating those cards, uh, your card and the other cards selected by other players in order of their rank. Um, and then you're gathering some loot also depending on the, on the rank in descending order. And all of these abilities, the abilities that trigger rarely have to do with a specific player. Rather, they might say the next card or the highest ranked card or the player to your right or one of your neighbors. That's the most choice you typically have between, um, between multiple players. Uh, and so you're in, it's really nice in this game that you have this level of interaction. You're constantly wondering what other players are doing. You're constantly paid attention to what other players are doing, um, but you are not, uh, not specifically targeting a player. Um, also, I wanted to briefly mention that games can have interaction without direct conflict at all. You can have uh, interaction to me is a reason to pay attention to other players, a reason to pay attention to what they're doing, because what they're doing might impact you. This can even be as simple as in Wingspan, the card row, the card tray that has three cards in it. Uh, there's an interaction there. If there's a card in that card tray that you want, 
you there's a sense of tension as you're paying attention to other players, wondering or hoping that they don't take that card. Or when it gets back around to your turn, you are having to decide, do I want to do something else on my turn? Do I want to lay eggs on my turn? Something that doesn't impact any other players? Or do I want to grab that card that I really want? Um, in the hopes that, uh, because because you want it and you don't want any other player to take it. That is a level of interaction in Wingspan. And positive player interaction is another style of interaction that also isn't available in Magic, typically. Positive player interaction is where you're doing something that benefits other players at the table. However, I'm spending a lot of time on this one, but there are examples of games that have no interaction at all, and I think they're still very much so games. In fact, there's one that I've enjoyed quite a bit recently, the Guild of Merchant Explorers is a simultaneous game where you are building your own map. Each player is building their own map. And uh, there's no interaction at all that I can think of between players. I've played this game four times over the last couple of days. I've loved every play of it. I've loved building my map. I love uh, achieving the goals. The goals. There are lots of rewards in this game. Um, here's what the, the map looks like in the game, the maps that you're building out. But everything is simultaneous and uh, the game basically embraced the simultaneous nature of itself. Whereas if it had tried to add interaction to the game, the game I think would have been much slower. I don't think it would have worked as well. My game Rolling Realms is completely simultaneous. and In fact, it's designed for remote play and even to be played not live with other players. I film live plays of Rolling Realms and players play along at their own leisure follow, watching the video on YouTube. And so this is the one area where I, I do not think games need interaction. Mark's argument was that the reason that we play games is to interact with other players, to have that presence with other people. And largely, I, I agree with that. But I think I, I've experienced that with the Guild of Merchant Explorers. Uh, I played three times with Megan over the last weekend, and we were constantly kind of looking over at each other's maps to see what we were doing differently, looking at each other's special abilities to see what they were doing differently. We didn't have to do that, but we could. We were still interacting with each other, even though the game wasn't having us interact with each other. Um, and also, there are solo games. Mark didn't really talk about that in that there are lots of games that can be played solo or even that are designed specifically for solo play, and they maybe involve interaction with some entity within the game, but not other players, and they are still very much so games. So interaction is one that I don't agree with, although I think it's important to keep in mind what level of interaction you want if you're designing a game. And number four is the other one that I'm a little iffy on, and this is a catch-up feature. So a catch-up mechanism, a way for a player who has fallen behind to catch up or have a chance uh, to win. And I actually don't think this is really as, as important as um, giving players some sort of intrinsic motivation to continue playing whether or not they are winning or losing. So for example, when I play, uh, when I play, this wasn't the example I was going to use, but when I play Tapestry, I am happy to complete, to do some cool stuff with my civilization. I'm happy to try to complete my capital city, even if I am not winning the game. I've decided that those things are important to me, and the game allows me to do those things in extravagant ways, and that feels good to me when I'm playing. So I think uh, a player's satisfaction can come from other things other than just having a chance to win. However, I did want to mention an example of a game that I think does have a great catch-up mechanism, and that is the Quacks of Quinlinburg. This is a push-your-luck game where uh, players do bust in this game. Like, you, you can bust, and if you bust, you will I, most likely fall behind in victory points while otherwise building your engine. But at the beginning of every round in Quacks, you, look, you compare your own... Uh, 
uh, victory point marker to the player with the most victory points and there are little rat tails artistically drawn into the victory point track and the number of rat tails between you and the first place player determines a little boost that you get in your your potion um your your uh your cauldron uh at the beginning of of that round so it gives you a little boost there to feel like you can catch up and really it does help you catch up Another game that has something similar is the Isle of Sky. Should have used that example because I do have that one on my shelf. The Isle of Sky gives players a catch-up me mechanism. Again, you're looking at your token as it relates to the the uh, as it relates to how many tokens, victory point tokens, are ahead of you on the track, and you get a little monetary boost based on that. So I do like those styles of uh, of catch-up mechanisms. If you are playing a game that is played round to round, so that's number four, a catch-up feature, catch-up mechanism. Number five is inertia, and this is one that I, uh, I I really agree with with what Mark was saying about it. Not just in terms of so he was talking about it largely in uh, encouraging players to end the game, to move the game forward towards its end. If the game has an organic end game condition, like Magic doesn't have a set number of rounds, you play Magic typically until one player's life is reduced to zero. Um, some players have round, or some games have rounds. You don't need as much inertia there, but you still need a sense of progression. You need players to feel more powerful at the end of the game than at the beginning of the game. Uh, but there are lots of games that don't have rounds. Many of which, uh, most of which, are, are games in the Summer Games Collection. We don't have games. We only have a few games with a set number of rounds. Um, so we need players in, to a way to encourage players to actually end the game. I remember encountering this when I was designing Scythe, uh, because Scythe has an organic win condition, and I really wanted to. Uh, I found in some playtesting that players would delay the end of the game because they didn't know if they were going to have the most points when they actually ended the game. So I tried to give players more and more incentives to actually end the game and have that be connected to end game points, but not necessarily have the player who ended the game be the one who wins the game. There's still a chance that other players can win. An example that I have on my shelf here on non-Stolmeyer games is Architects of the West Kingdom. I think this game does a great job of this. In Architects, one of the core things you're doing to score points is to permanently lose a worker. You're placing it on a place on the board. I don't have a great visual example here, but you're placing it on a specific place on the board that has a limited number of spots for workers. And when you do that, you're doing one of two things to gain points. You're either building the cathedral or you're building a building itself. That worker is doing the work of, of, of building a building um, or the cathedral. And that worker is done. You, you're losing that worker, but you're getting points from it. And that is the main way of getting points in the game. And crucially, I'll, I'll repeat it, there are a limited number of spots there. And so you're always trying to get those spots before other players uh, to get points and to ensure that, uh, that, that you were the one that, that, that has room to get points there. And uh, the game ends when all those spots for your player count are filled. I think it is a wonderful example of inertia in a tabletop game. That's in Architects of the West Kingdom. And number six on the list is surprise. Mark believes that every game needs some element of surprise. I actually don't know if this is something that every game needs, but I do know that some of my favorite games are games that have a surprise or memorable moments in them, something that uh, sticks to players' minds when they look back on, on how that game played. Um, so some examples that he gave are 
uh, adding variability, having hidden information. So maybe the surprise comes from what other players are doing rather than what the game is presenting to you. Um, and just replayability in general. I think Mark used the example of the deck of cards in Magic as what you're being surprised by. I would also add, one of my favorite ways to play Magic is to draft it. And so the surprise of opening up a new pack and seeing what's in there, and then even just to be handed a new hand of cards and seeing what's in that hand, that is a wonderful moment of surprise in Magic the Gathering. But the example here that I wanted to give is a game that I've really been enjoying lately, and that is Land versus Sea, a primarily two-player dueling game about placing tiles on a map to form either sea areas or land areas. And the really clever hook in this game, in terms of surprise, is that at any given time, uh, or at the end of your turn, you're, you're refilling your hand up to two tiles, and you're drawing them from two stacks. But you can only see the top of those stacks. You can only see the top tiles on those stacks. However, the tiles are double-sided. And so when you select the tile, say I select this one, I add it to my hand, or I leave it on the table essentially, so the other player can always see what's on the top of the tile because that's been open information from when I drew the tile. However, they don't get to see the back of the tile. That's hidden information for only me to know. And so it lets me feel a little bit sneaky. I know a little, I know something that you don't know, but you do know what's on front of the tile. I think it's a great balance between having public information and hidden information in a game. And there's always that surprise, that moment of surprise of after you draw the tile, seeing what's on the other side and getting excited by that. And maybe even hiding that excitement from the other player. So I do, this is something that I love when games have moments of surprise and greater, grander, memorable moments. Um, I don't know if it's entirely necessary for a game to have that, but I like it when games have it. And number seven is strategy. Um, so Mark explains this in a specific way uh, as uh, giving players a way to improve with experience. So someone who has played a game five times will probably be, should, Mark believes they should be better at the game than someone who's only played it once. Um, and that you have long-term agency in the game. So you have long-term decisions that you can make, that, not just luck, where, where uh, the, your agency in the game uh, uh, pairs well with the strategy. And I would pair with this something that he didn't mention, which is the ability to plan ahead. I think that's key to strategy uh, because I, I look at these, uh, look towards the agency in the games of being between tactical play and strategical play. Tactical play is kind of short-term things that are happening to you or that you are making happen and you're responding to them in a way that optimizes those things in the moment. Whereas strategy is saying uh, early on in the game, planning ahead for things later in the game that you want to happen. Like you might have a, a really expensive card in hand that you want to play or that you want to build and you plan your strategy around that card so you can end up building it, so you can do, build it in an optimal way and maybe you can benefit from the ongoing ability on that card. So an ability to plan ahead and to strategize early on in the game for things that you want to happen later in the game, I think this is something that I, I like to see in games. I don't think it happens in every game. I think some games are much more tactical than strategical. But, um, uh, but I do like the idea of, of any game, uh, of improving with any game over time. And one game that I found that I've improved with over time, also one of my favorite games, is Ark Nova. Um, Arc Nova is full of player agency. There's very little randomness in the game other than the random um, animal cards that come out on the board. But you have a ton of agency over the decisions you make, a ton of control over those decisions. And I have found with repeated plays of Arc Nova that 
uh, you typically get better at the game because you're able to identify different patterns, you're able to pursue different strategies. And that's one, one thing I, I would say about Ark Nova, where every time I play, it plays out a little bit differently because I might start with a different combination, or I do start with a different combination of cards, animal cards and gold cards. And I might say, okay, this game, uh, this combination of cards works really well. Also with public goals, this combination of cards works really well if I go after cats. And this will be my cat game. I'll go after cats. I still might have to pivot a little bit and have those tactical maneuvers throughout the game. My long-term strategy might be about cats that game. And that actually adds to the memorable moments of the game. Because I actually have had a game of Ark Nova where I went after cats. I've had a game where I went after aquatic stuff. Um, I've, had, I've had different, I've had, I had a, a kind of an ape-themed game as well. So yeah, that's strategy at number seven. At number eight, Mark talked about fun. Uh, he puts us lower on this list. Uh, I would probably put it higher. I think fun is is the heart of anything that I do when I make a game. Uh, whether I'm starting out a game with a thematic idea or a mechanical idea, I need to eventually make sure that uh, none of those things, that the theme, the mechanisms, the, the rules, that none of those things get in the way of the fun. Uh, the fun is, is the key for me. Um, and I wanted to give Magic a shout out here because I do love Magic. I love playing Magic. I love especially drafting Magic. And so I wanted to throw Magic in for the fun category. I think there are elements of Magic that aren't fun, uh, like when you when you get mana screwed. But uh, but I think Magic is a lot of fun. The reason I, I continually return to it is that, that I have a lot of fun with it. And as Mark pointed out in the article, fun is a very nebula, nebulous thing. It is hard to um, hard to say what is fun what is fun for me might also be not fun for you but this is why we play test this is why we play test games this is why we i play test in person so i can see when players how players are engaging with a game if they're if i can see it in their faces if i can see whether they're not pulling out their cell phones while they're playing um this is why i ask blind play testers to rate our games so let me know how much fun they're having with those games so uh and it's also why if i find players being frustrated by something in the game even if it's a great thematic fit or really a clever mechanical hook, I'd rather players have fun with it than be frustrated, frustrated by it. So I always prioritize fun when I'm designing games. Number nine is flavor. So this is the theme, I think kind of the purpose of the theme. And I really like what Mark says about the purpose of the theme here, where if you have a theme that is deeply ingrained in the mechanisms of a game, it helps players make sense of the game. It helps them learn the game. It helps them remember how the game works. Um, and a game that I think does a great job of this, one that I just got my Kickstarter copy of, one of my beloved games, is The Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Uh, this is one of, my, one of my favorite games for a long time now, but I haven't played it in a while, and I'm so excited to get the collector's edition of the table. And The Castles of Mad King Ludwig, you are building your own castle with tiles, and it is a kind of a cra crazy, zany castle. You'll have rooms all over the place, and places where maybe they shouldn't be. But uh, they fit together in such an interesting way, and it really feels like you are building a castle. Um, and the game explains, I mean, everything in the game is explained by, by, by how that works. Even, there's even an I price you choose mechanism in the game where you're spending money, and you're paying that money to the player whose turn it is to be the master builder. So the player who priced the tiles where they go, you're paying money to that player. It would be a little bit more abstracted if you were just play, paying that money to the general bank. Said no, you're playing, paying the money to that player. So that player has a really good incentive to pay attention to what you're doing and price tiles in a way that uh, that you can afford, but also that uh, price in, in, in a way that they can get the most money out of you. Uh, but that paired with the, the fact that you are actually placing tiles and building a castle on the table is just, it, it, it 
it feels wonderful. It feels really satisfying. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, um, about catch-up features and a reason you might play a game. I, I don't necessarily... Like, I play castles to score a bunch of points, for sure. But in the end, I am playing... I, I, can, I can have a lot of fun with castles just building an awesome castle on the table, um, even if I win or lose. So a catch-up mechanism I don't think is as important in castles because you get that satisfaction of building a castle either way. So that is flavor at number nine. And number 10, a hook. I'm so glad Mark included this uh, because it's something I talk about all the time in terms of marketing and game design and product design and publishing. I think the best games have one or more hooks. I think they have a thematic hook, some thematic twist that's a little bit different. They have a, uh, a mechanical hook, some mechanism that might be similar to a mechanism in another game, but is done in a unique way that makes it stand out and ideally a component and artistic hook as well. Magic of the cards have beautiful art. Um, I wouldn't say that magic necessarily has a component hook other than the moment of like opening up a new pack, that's really nice. But a lot of games have component hooks that really stand out and draw players to the table. The game that I wanted to use here as an example is Cat in the Box. I think Cat in the Box has a wonderful hook. It is a mechanical hook in that the cards in your hand are colorless. You declare the color of a card in your hand as you play it. Um, and then you mark that the color of that card on this track here. So if I have a, a four card, or I have a three card, here's the three, and I wanna play it as a blue three, I just get to say, this is a blue three, unless some other player during the course of that round has already declared that they played a blue three, and then you can't do that. That blue three is already taken. But I think that's such a clever hook. It's such a clever way to describe this game to players. And it is a little abstract. It's tough to, it's a little bit maybe difficult to describe, but it is a really, really clever hook that you're playing a trick-taking game where the cards don't have suits or they don't have colors. So anything like that where you can pitch, basically you can pitch a game to someone um, or I can pitch one of my games to you and describe it very briefly and describe the thing that stands out about it. That's the hook. And I think, I, again, I, I don't know necessarily need to say, I wouldn't necessarily say that every game needs a hook, but I would hope that every game has a hook, especially with as many games are out there in the world. I would hope that every new game has some special hook that makes it stand out uh, amongst all the other games that are available. Really cool list here from Mark. I was trying to think if there's anything that I would add that he didn't put on his list. And the only thing is something that I kind of tagged onto strategy, which is the ability to plan ahead for your turn. Um, I think that is, I think that makes most games better if you can do that. Again, I don't know if it's necessary for a game to have that for it to be defined as a game, but I think any game where you can plan ahead about what you want to do on your next turn or your next couple of turns, uh, I think that makes the experience better for you and the experience better for all players at the table rather than have so many moving parts happen at the table that you cannot plan, plan ahead for your next move until, uh, until the, the player before you has taken their turn. Um, I think that makes games a little bit difficult. So I, I, I tag that onto this list, the ability to plan ahead. But overall, I think this is a pretty comprehensive look list. I would maybe take off a few of these things as true necessities for something to be a game. But uh, for most of these, except for interaction and maybe a catch-up feature, um, I would say that for, for there to be a good game, when I'm trying to design a really, really good game, a great game, that I would include any of these things or, or all of these things in that game. Those are my thoughts on uh, on uh, Mark, Mark Rosewater's list of 10 things every game needs. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. If you have any other examples that I didn't mention, if you uh, agree or disagree with the things that he mentioned, or if you have anything else in your mind that you can think of that you think every game needs, let me know in the comments below.
Thanks.